Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is really a, a part two. Uh, we did the uh, first uh, 11 verses last week. And so we're going to finish the, the section of this passage this morning. But again, it's a continuation of God's comfort in dying for Christ. That is, for those who serve in the ministry of Jesus Christ and, and have become martyrs. Uh, again, or, again the, the possibility of becoming martyr. We saw uh, Stephen stoned to death. But, you know, he knew that he had the comfort of Christ if he died. And so we do have a tremendous comfort, you know, if it ever came to that place or we foresaw that uh, that could happen in ministry. But Paul now finishes this section of his letter with words of encouragement. Because his enemies were constantly attacking him. They, they attacked his message. They attacked the way that he did things. And so... All through his letters to the Corinthians, Paul is forced to defend himself. That is, to, to defend every move that he makes. I mean, can you imagine? What a hassle. He, you know, he's serving the Lord. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he's doing it the way God, you know, calls him to do it. But everything he does, somebody is hassling him about what he does and the way he does it or why he does it. Uh, but so, you know, again... Serving under those conditions, what would drive Paul to keep going in his ministry? Was it because of fame? Was it for the money? No. You see, Paul had a much higher reason <clears throat> for his work <clears throat> than most ministers do today. And Paul gives us two honorable reasons that inspired his ministry. So let's begin now in chapter 5, verse 12. <clears throat> he says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance, but not in heart. So Paul now points out to the love of Christ. We learn how Christ's love controlled what Paul did. And it should be the controlling factor in our lives. You know, that wasn't his motive at all, that, you know, he was doing it for fame or he was doing it for money. You know, he had just told us what his life was like in the light of the judgment seat of Christ. It should be quite clear to every, everyone, again, what Paul's life was like. You know, he can, he, can, uh, he can hear his critics at Corinth, you know, talking bad about him. You know, like when it says there at the very beginning, do we commend ourselves again to you? In other words, do we have to bring the right credentials and, and uh, uh, the right uh, uh, approval of certain people in, in the church and to show that uh, we know we're, we're, we're true and we're right on? Paul says no. So, you know, he hears the critics, you know, talking about him. So Paul's going, do we have to recommend ourselves again? Do we have to toot our own horn again? Do we have to pat ourselves on the back showing you that, Hey, we're, we're right on. We're good people. That wasn't his motive at all. Paul, had, Paul still had a lot of friends and supporters at Corinth. His only desire in mentioning himself uh, was to give material to use in defending his character against the lies and the slanders of his enemies. So we look at what he said. He says, we're not praising ourselves. 
We're giving you guys a reason to be proud of us so that you can answer those who, who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. So Paul seems to be talking about the false teachers who invaded the Corinthian church. They were people who were satisfied with just an outward appearance, looking good, but not too concerned about the inward qualifications of a teacher, the reasons for what they're doing you know, in ministry. They took pride in their position, but they were nothing but Judaizers, just legalists. Judaizing legalists who had nothing to boast about uh, except their Hebrew ancestry, their circumcision, and their imagined privileges. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 7 uh, and 9. It says, But when he, John the Baptist, saw how many Pharisees and, and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other that we're safe because we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing because God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. They, you know, they, they, they fell back on their ancestry. Hey, we're children of Abraham. They weren't worried about the heart or their motivation for what they did. They were falling back on their ancestry. Paul could have done that. Paul could have boasted about all the things that uh, even before he got saved. And of even more zealous faithfulness than them, you know, than his critics in Corinth. It wasn't the trappings of outward religion that mattered to Paul. It was the matter of the heart. Remember when God was looking for Saul's replacement and Jesse's sons were brought in and being inspected by Samuel the prophet? Samuel the prophet was impressed by them. All they came in, but God wasn't. Samuel was looking at their physical features. Israel had already made a mistake doing that with Saul. The Lord told Samuel, look, I don't look at the outward man, but I look into his heart. And just like the legalists who might look good, they might, might sound good. They were really just a bunch of boasters. And the Lord could see right through them. And so could Paul. And he hoped that the Corinthians could see through them as well. So Paul wasn't going to let <clears throat> any phoniness about himself get in his way of helping the Corinthians to see the difference between him and his enemies, the false teachers. Look at what Paul says now in verse 13. He goes on to say, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So he says, if it seems like we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And if we're in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Some people thought Paul was nuts. You know, and a lot of times people think Christians are nuts. Sometimes they have good reason. Because it seems like the only time a, a, a Christian is interviewed on, on, on the news is because God's told him to kill a bunch of people and do a bunch of weird stuff. And pretty much that's the way it goes. That's, that's a Christian for you. But, you know, they thought Paul was nuts. They thought he was crazy. But he was just, you know, we can be crazy for God. And when we are, we, we do things and we say things that don't make sense to people because they don't understand the spiritual things of God. And so Paul taught, you know, that, 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 that Jesus was Lord. And, and so, you know, crazy or not, what he was doing was for God's glory. And it was for the good of the people. 
So again, believers would not, you know, find it, uh, you know, impossible for someone like Paul to be insane because of all that he did and all that he was. Paul had a goal, and nothing and no one was going to stop Paul from keeping his goal. And that goal was to preach the gospel. It was to preach Jesus Christ, and it was to be like Jesus. Paul's total dedication was his goal. And the total dedication to his goal, along with his single-mindedness, definitely caused him to have a few enemies that says, hey, this guy's insane. The driving force in Paul's amazing life was love. It was love for God. And it took over Paul's life. Look at verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the love of Christ means his love for us as seen in his sacrificial death. His death showed his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we love him because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. Think of it. God loved us when we were obnoxious. God loved us when we wanted nothing to do with him. God loved us when we talked so bad about him, when we mocked him or anybody that, that was a believer. He loved us when we were ungodly, when we were ungodly sinners and enemies. And when Jesus died on the cross, he proved his love for every single human being. Every single human being, no matter how evil they are, no matter what they did. And when you think about why Jesus died, you can't help but love him. Because Jesus didn't just die, uh, he, he, he didn't just die for me, but he died as me. He was a, my substitute. This identifies us with Christ. And also in his death, burial, and resurrection. When Jesus died, we died. And when Jesus was buried, we were buried. When he arose, we arose. And as believers, we have died to the old life, and we now stand in him on resurrection ground. The sentence of death against us, as natural-born sinners of the fallen race of Adam, has been done away with. Paul wasn't crazy. Paul just lived a victorious, selfless, resurrected life. His whole life was transformed by the love of Christ. And because it has been, now Paul lived like Jesus lived. He didn't live for himself. Paul lived for others. So we no longer live to please ourselves, but to live for Jesus. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life with which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see, Paul now moves on to look at the life of Christ. And the first thing Paul shows us is the reality of the new mind. Look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. This is beautiful here. To know someone according to the flesh means 
knowing and valuing people as our flesh judges them based on how they look, based on their ethnicity, based on the neighborhood they live in, the job they have, you know, the, the way they talk, the things that they do. We judge people that way. And Paul says, uh-uh, not anymore. Because you've got a new mind, you've got a new life, you've got a new personality. Again, to know someone according to the flesh was to know, know them and value them by, by, their, by our flesh. Paul says, that's the way I used to look at Jesus. And that's the way before we got saved, we used to look at Jesus. Was he real? Did he really exist? Was he who he said he was? All of those things, because we didn't know. So we judge based on our flesh. And so Paul says, that's the way I used to look at Jesus. But now, Paul knows that the mental picture he had formed of Jesus at one time, he knows, hey, that was wrong. And I look back, yeah, my, my mental picture of Jesus was wrong. And that's the way it is with most unbelievers. Their, their, their mental picture of Jesus is wrong. But now Paul says he evaluates Jesus from a spiritual point of view. And that's also the way he evaluates men. And we need to you know, hear this and we need to put this in our heart. And we must do the same thing. That we evaluate all men through the eyes of Jesus Christ. And that's, and that's Paul. He says in, in, in Philippians 2.5... Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. First, uh, uh, First Corinthians second two sixteen, Paul said, "We have the mind of Christ." And then in Romans twelve two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The flesh says that fame and fortune and status make a great man, but that's to know somebody. That's to judge somebody and value somebody according to your flesh. To evaluate spiritually will make a big difference in the way that we judge people. It says the rich and the powerful need the gospel just as much as the poor person does. And that the educated person needs Christ just as much as the uneducated person does. See, it's looking, it's, it's becoming a Christian changes everything. It changes everything so completely that the believer no longer judges people according to their outward lives. And that's the problem with the world today. The ordinary worldly standards that we once held, they won't do anymore. They won't do anymore in the Christian's life. Everybody that we now meet is somebody special. And this is, that's what I love about this passage here. What Paul is saying. Yeah, I used to look at people based on what my own judgment, my own flesh. But now, as believers, you guys, we need to look at every single person as special who needs Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. No matter who they are, what they look like, what they do, they need Jesus Christ. There's somebody special. They're special to Jesus. There's somebody that Jesus created. There's somebody that Jesus died for. All relationships have been changed. And I remember what, I think about this all the time when um, 
I, I don't know if you're all familiar with the Pastor Jim symbol of, I think it's, the, it's a, Brooklyn, a church in Brooklyn, anyway, a big church, wrote a book, um, Fresh Wind, Fresh, Fresh Fire. And if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to get it. It's an old book, but I would encourage you to read it. But he lived in a really uh, broke down part of, 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 of New York and Brooklyn. And he'd get a lot of homeless people, a lot of drug addicts. They'd come into his church, a lot of homeless people. And I remember one day when he was giving a message, he said that, that you know, he did an altar call. And he said, this one guy came forward. And this one guy, he said it was a homeless man. And he says the closer he got, he began to smell, you know, the, all the smells of this homeless man. And Jim Cimbala was saying to himself, oh, man, I, oh, this is terrible. I, ooh, this, I hope, man, I, let's get this over with. And so he, you know, so he can get out of here and I have to smell that anymore. And he said, all of a sudden, God spoke to him and said, I died for that man. I died for that man. And he felt convicted. And obviously, he changed his attitude. But that's pretty powerful. And that's what Paul's saying here. Jesus created that man. He loves that man and he died for that man. And so this is, this is the, the thing that, that Paul is talking about here. All relationships have changed now that we are Christians. A person's outward circumstances, hey, they no longer determine his value. Paul used to do that kind of a thing. Paul says, even those who did, uh, who, who did know Jesus as a man don't know him like that anymore. Like Peter and the other disciples and the multitudes who used to know uh, uh, Jesus like that. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection changed all of that. And now Paul has something to say about the new man in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The great changes that take place in the, in, in the sinner are changes only the word of God can bring. Only the gospel, gospel can bring this kind of a change to a human being. That's the amazing thing about this book. You can just start to read it as, as curious and as an unbeliever. And, and for some people, before they get done, man, it's touched their heart and it's changed their lives. And they're born again. That's the beauty of the word of God, and the miracle of the gospel. The wonderful changes that the gospel, gospel can bring to the sinner. All things, Paul said, have become new. Now, this doesn't include physical changes. That'll happen when we get our new body. But all things, spiritually speaking, they, 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 they're new. They become new. And there's at least three important changes that take place. First, there's a change in our devotion. Our interests will greatly change. You know, the things that we used to like in the world and the flesh, I don't want to do those things anymore. And see, that's one of the things that really blows people's minds. He doesn't want to run, want to run around with us anymore. He doesn't want to go to the places we go to. He doesn't want to do the things that we've been doing for, for a long time. Just stop. Doesn't want to do it anymore. You see, because God gives us new desires. Our interests greatly changed. A, a saved person will have interest in spiritual things that unsaved people won't have. 
When you get saved now, now I want to read the Bible. I want to go to church. I want to pray. I want to witness. And I remember when I got saved, when I was working at my old job in L.A., and I was working with this guy, and I think we were working a grave, yeah, working a graveyard shift. And uh, the guy was saying, man, I'm really looking forward to getting off work and go do this and this. And I said, what are you going to do? I said, man, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get in my bed. I'm going to read my Bible. He went, yuck. You're going to read your Bible? And then he just, you know, he just, I said, yeah, I'm, go. I'm so looking forward to going home and reading my Bible. But again, people don't understand that. You know, they just, it, it, again, it's a spiritual thing, which they don't understand. So again, your devotion will change, your interest will change, you want to read the scriptures, you go to church, pray, tell people about what has happened to you. A saved person will have devotion for Christ that an unsaved person won't have. The next thing in the, in the, new, the, new, uh, the new man, there's a change in behavior. There will be a change in a person's behavior when he gets saved and reconciled to God. The change will especially be noticed if the person who was saved uh, is, was saved in their adult life. They don't cuss anymore. They don't want to go drinking anymore. They don't want to get high anymore. They don't want to think filthy thoughts anymore. They won't enjoy filthy things that they once enjoyed. Then there's a change in destiny, and this is the great part, man. There's a change in destiny. This is the greatest and most important change of all. I'm going to go to heaven now, not hell. The unsaved soul is headed for eternity in hell. But my new faith, the new man, the new mind changes me. But it, and it changes me so drastically that it's going to change my destiny. But here's the thing. If your new faith in Christ doesn't drastically change your behavior, there's doubt that you're going to go to heaven. Because when you look at the changes in the new man, they're holy changes. They're godly changes. And so again, our, 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 our change must, uh, this two, new, new life must change us drastically. It's going to change our destiny. When a person becomes a Christian, old things pass away, Paul says, and all things become new. Because in Christ, the identical uh, life that Jesus lived is available to us. Because he didn't just give us life, he didn't just give life for us. He gave his life to us. I like that. Robert Murray McShane said, It's not great talent that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. And like Paul told the Romans, new laws come into play. He said in Romans 8, 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul said in Romans 7, 21 through 25, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. He says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. 
Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's controlled by sin and death? He says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. But I like where he mentions the answer. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's controlled by sin? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not in something. All right? It's not in some uh, um, counseling I go to. It's not in some habit that I change. It's not in something. It's in a person. It's in Jesus Christ. The life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And John said in 1 John 3, 9, Whoever has been born again does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been of God. He has been born of God. Now, when it says whoever has been born of God does not sin, it means does not practice sin. It doesn't make a practice of it. And he says because his seed, Christ's seed, remains in him. And he cannot sin. There is, you know, we don't have to sin, though we do. We have the ability to not sin. But though we do. So again, uh, you know, his seed remains in us. And this makes us the new life, the new devotion, uh, all the new new thoughts. It's an amazing thing that's happened. And, And... you know, it's one of the things that I relate to when I was in the Air Force and I was a jet engine mechanic. And that's strictly, I specialized in the jet engine mechanic. They had other people for the, the entire aircraft. But my specific job was on jet engines. And I learned a lot about what makes a jet aircraft get off of the ground and, and stay in the air. The aircraft defies the law of gravity. And to this day, I'm still amazed when I see planes flying, as a matter of fact, Kathy and I were in the front yard yesterday doing Christmas lights, and there was three or four of them. That I, I, I was looking up, and I told her, I'm still amazed at how those things stay in the air. It, it, you know, tons of metal lifting off of the ground and then staying and just gliding in the air like a bird. I can't see how it's done. I don't understand completely how it's done. But you know what? I can see with my own eyes that it's being done. See, it's the same with the Christian. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ that sets us free from the law of sin and death. I don't know how it's done, but I can see that it is done. The amazing miracle of the new birth. The law of the spirit causes us to rise above the law of sin and death. And then Paul tells us the reason for the change. Look at verse 18. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a work that God does through Jesus Christ. Reconciliation involves the whole work of the gospel. It has to do with Jesus. If you leave him out, you won't have any reconciliation. All, everything is of God. There is a strong hostility that exists between God and man. But it's all man's doing. God, God's not hostile at me. God doesn't hate us. He loves us. All we have to do is look at the cross. He did that to show us how much he loves us. We hated him. 
Because the devil told us that God was our enemy and that God wanted to spoil our fun. His distorted, the, the, the devil's distorted uh, our thinking about God. The devil wanted us to see God as a big, mean bully. Or he'd tell us that the way back to God is painful. Oh man, if you want to walk with God, you want to serve God, it calls for making amends. It calls for doing pilgrimages and fasts and punishments and sacrifices and sufferings. Not true. He just said, come. So simple. All the hostility, hey, it was on our side. Never God. God is the one who's reaching out to us. He's always been the initiator. He's the one who does the reconciling. Man never makes reconciliation. All the initiative is with God. Always has been. He's the one who offers us pardon. And it's all because of Jesus who provides the atoning sacrifice. When Adam and Eve sinned, remember they heard God's voice calling out to them in the garden. And instead of them, like they normally did, probably instead of going you know, out to him, instead of being drawn to him, they ran away. And they hid from him. And I'm thinking the devil probably told them, oh, God's after you now. You're in big trouble. But God came to them so that they would reconcile with him. He came to them to make things right and to give them a way that they could come back to him. But see, they didn't seek after God. God sought them. So as a result, he's given us a new ministry. And Paul tells us all about it uh, as, as our ministry is reconciliation. Verse 19, notice. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespass to them and 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 has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God could do one of two things with our sins. He could record them or reject them. Thank God he's chosen to reject them, to discount them, to get rid of them. And yet at the same time, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Paul has just finished reminding the believer that he's in Christ. And now he tells us that God was in Christ. And that's where we meet at last in reconciliation. We're reconciled. There's probably no better example in the New Testament of the father's role in reconciliation than in the story of the prodigal son and his equally lost older brother. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son. And we can picture the returning prodigal son as he marches up over the top of the hill. He sees his father's house up ahead in the distance. And, and it all belongs to his older brother now. Because the prodigal took his, his, his inheritance and went out and experienced the party life. So everything belongs to his older brother now, or it soon will. The prodigal has wasted his share on the so-called good life. But the prodigal, as he's going back home, he sees his house now. And as he gets closer, he, 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 his steps seem to get heavier. He realizes how hard it's going to be to get back and just say, Father, forgive me. His feet feel like, man, they're made out of lead. 
And then they come to a stop because he just feels like he can't go any further. He's thinking, what a carefree life I had just a few months ago. Man, what a fun-filled journey that road that I took off on. What a, what a great time that led me to. Man, I had money to burn. I had friends. You know, I, I, there was music and dancing and drinking and parties. He said, what a blast I had. I didn't have a care in the world. Dad wasn't bothering me. He wasn't telling me I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. He wasn't interfering with what I wanted to do. There was no lecturing. I was just hanging out with my friends, playing hard every day, going from one city to another, seeing the world, living the good life. But then one day it all stopped. My money ran out, along with my friends. I was hungry. I was tired. I needed a bath. I had no friends. He's down and out. Couldn't get any lower but he's still afraid to go home. On his way home, he started putting together and rehearsing in his heart what he's going to say to his dad. He's thinking, Dad, again, he's putting together his story. Dad, I, I know I messed up. And I know I'm not good enough to be your son. And all I'm asking of you is just make me one of your servants. But he's still hesitant about going home. Dad, he's putting his message together. I I really messed up. I I mocked you. I bad-mouthed you. I was filled with hostility and resentment towards you. I dishonored your name. I wasted my gifts. And the prodigal son's repeating this over and over in his mind, what he's going to say to his dad when he gets there, that, that he's prepared for his father. But he knew it still wasn't good enough. He'd rather die where he wasn't, than be rejected by his father. But he really worked himself up. He really worked up enough courage to get home. He was so tired, he was so hungry, and he was so lost. But he finally worked up enough courage to go home. Then all of a sudden, he hears something. Not quite sure what it was, but he hears a shout. And it's his father's voice, he says. It's my father's voice. Oh, man. He's yelling at me. He says, no, I'm really going to get it now. And there he was, running towards him. And his robe's tied up. His arms are outstretched. The next thing he knows, he's in his father's arms. And he's wrapped up. The arms are wrapped up tightly around. He said, man, he could feel his love. His father's love. His father had been waiting and watching for him all along to come home. And he had come running in a hurry to reconcile his long lost son to himself. There was no hostility in his father. There was no resentment, no bitterness, no grudge, no retaliation, no third degree, no lecture, no finger pointing. No, I told you so. No harshness in his father's voice. Just the father wanting to be reconciled to his son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging them with their sins. Not one word of blame from the father, only joy and gladness. And the father put on him the robe, the ring, the shoes, got the fatted calf, the music, and the dancing. And see, that's a picture of the father reconciling every believer. He's just waiting for you to come. That's it, waiting for you to come. No interrogation. 
No pointing the finger. No, I told you so. And it was the same thing with the older brother. Only the older brother was harder to reach because his sins were sins of the heart. His problems uh, wasn't the sins of the far country like the, his brother was, but the hypocrisy in his own heart because of his wild, uh, wasn't because of his wild living, but his self-righteous living. He was, he was down on his brother because he stayed home. He did everything daddy told him to do. He was a good boy, but now he was being you know, upset about it because dad is now treating him like, like he was a good son on along. But he's on the same plane as the prodigal. Just being hypocritical. With him, the, the, the older son, it was all about himself. The last time we see him, the father is still talking to him, pleading with him, urging him to come into the celebration for his brother. But no, he wouldn't do it. He wanted reconciliation with the hypocritical son just as much as he wanted reconciliation with the prodigal son. You see, that's the way God is. God has committed to us the word of reconciliation, not angels. Nobody can tell others about the gospel better than we can. Angels, they can't experience salvation. Let's close with verse 20 and 21. Now, when we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who know. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, Paul here ends his letter talking about responsibility. An ambassador is somebody who represents his country in another country. Everyone can be a witness for Jesus Christ and should be. Paul saw himself as an ambassador. We're ambassadors. God still has his ambassadors today. In every generation, he raises up special men like Billy Graham was to carry his name before the world like Paul did. God never leaves himself without those who can speak for him to those who sit in the seats of power, influence, and authority in the world. The substitute for our reconciliation was Jesus Christ who knew no sin. Christ's death was substitutionary. It was for us. He took our place. He took our sins upon himself and he paid the price on the cross that sinners we could not pay. The purity for, the, uh, the purity from reconciliation says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In order to be reconciled to God, we must be as good as God, which is impossible on our own. The only way that can happen is for the righteousness of God to be imputed to us, transferred to us. Isaiah said in Isaiah 6.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. There Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the remnant who are praising God for all that he's done. They rejoice that he has cleansed them and clothed them and turned their desert into a faithful garden. They have gone from a funeral to a wedding. All Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. So when God sees us, guess who he sees? His son. And when he sees his son, 
it satisfies God. All has been done well in Christ. Father, we thank you so much for the new birth, God. We thank you that we're new men and new women in Christ, God. That we're ambassadors. Father, we're ambassadors of heaven, Father. And we're here representing heaven to this world, God. Help us to be ambassadors of our citizenship to this world, God. To tell people about a better place, a better world, a better life, God. And it all comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So, Father, we thank you so much that we're born again. We thank you that you saw fit to choose us, God. To make us your children, Lord. Now help us to live for you. To speak for you. And God, if it, came, if it comes to it, even to die for you, God. Father, we just love you so much for all that you've done. And Father, we thank you for the offering that we're, we'll receive today, Father. We thank you for always for your generous hand and taking care of us, God, and providing for all of our needs, Lord. Now, bless our time, Father, as we go out now, Lord. And again, may we, may we take Jesus to the world, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We encourage you to come back at 6 o'clock tonight. We'll continue our study in Jonah. Book of Jonah will be in Jonah chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. The title tonight is Man Overboard. So you probably know what happens. God bless you guys. Good morning, church. Announcements for you this morning. One of them, I've got a bunch of umbrellas to sell out front. So I'm going to be selling umbrellas.